Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 91, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, you're all right, Ravi. I know you had a bit of a meltdown in the kitchen upstairs. Oh my God, this is, this is a disgrace. You know, the packaging on sweets, they're really reducing it these days. My Rolos, I only got about five in a packet. It was awful. I'm in a Rolo rage, Dan. Because <laughs> we've got a little tuck box upstairs in this building that we, uh, we record the show in that, you know, occasionally we may dabble in. I'm not, you know, not suggesting that I eat chocolate <laughs> every, every week. week. Yeah. Every, every week. But yeah, you've got a pack of Rolos and it m- literally was about half the size that I remember. It's awful, you know, like Mars bars are tiny nowadays and Toblerone, there's, there's this massive gap to make it apparently easier for eating. Somehow I doubt that. You could just snap them off before. I, I can see you thinking of starting like a sweet podcast. A sweet a sweet revolution. <laughs> <laughs> we, actually, we actually put a picture on Facebook as well. I love the comment from David Hayes. It goes, I don't think there are 16 bits in there, maybe 8 bits. Oh, uh, like love what he it. Did. <laughs> so this show is not about sweets, though. It is about video games. But it is about, you know, retro games, stuff from back in the day. And we do cover, like, you know, classic consoles and computers. But if we're talking really vintage, it's all about the arcades, isn't it? Oh, totally. And the guest today we have is... Probably the king of the arcades, or the referee of the arcades, would say. And it's Walter Day of Twin Galaxies. He's the kind of father of competitive gaming. Now, you may have seen movies like uh, King of Kong. Well, Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is a character in, in Wreck-It Ralph that's a tribute to him, isn't yeah. it, the referee in there? And he, he's essentially the guy that got competitive gaming, uh, high scores, video games in the Guinness Book of Records. Well, everyone was going around all these different towns and they were saying, oh, my my mate's the best at Pac-Man in the world. And no one was keeping a kind of chart of this and uh, Walter was one of the guys that started it. Yeah, well, he essentially became the official scorekeeper for arcade video games. Yeah, the scorekeeper for gaming. (laughs) Yeah, around the world for decades. So, I mean, I'm sure if you've got any interest in retro gaming on the arcades, you'll be familiar with Walter Day, an absolute legend. And it's amazing that he's agreed to be our special guest this week. And Walter will be coming up plenty of tales about those absolutely, you know, the golden age of arcades really, wasn't it, back in the early 80s? And oh, yeah, 80s. and those competitions were massive, weren't they? You remember they, some of them were televised? Yeah. They had, like, Life magazine, Time magazine involved. It was crazy. And also, there's some interesting stuff about, like, movies like King of Kong. We'll find out, you know, was that really accurate? You know, did it really represent it well? Well, even even kind of, like, modern retro films like pixels mm-hmm. that the whole thing about pixels is that they have the old arcade competition guys and they'll come back and have to do it against yeah i'm not going to explain the story but it's kind of relating <laughs> I, that. i'd rather hear you explain it than watch it to be fair <laughs> yeah. having watched that film, but, yeah. but it's relating that kind of old gamingness to the kind of big picture now because it, it seemed like it was a separate thing at the beginning didn't it it seemed like you know they did that and then there was a video game crash but arcades obviously just it's where it all began, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. And it's like, you know, we're going to get some amazing stories. Walter Day from Twin Galaxies is our special guest in around 15 minutes on the Retro Hour podcast. And of course, we couldn't keep doing this show week in, week out and bring you incredible guests like Walter Day. Like, who else have we had on this show? John oh, Romero. John Romero, yeah. We've, we've had Lord British. We've yeah. had uh, Ian Livingston. We've had just some fabulous Eugene Jarvis. Yeah. <laughs> this is pretty much like, you know, our show over the last nearly two years now, pretty much, I don't want to big us up too much, but it's a bit like a who's who of like video game history, isn't it, in computers? It's crazy. I never thought we'd get to this level. And it's been thanks to you guys, you know, you supporting it, kind of adding your comments and donating has just really helped drivers. 
Absolutely. So if you want to, you know, keep this show going throughout 2018, which is getting very close there, you can put a couple of quid, a couple of euros, a couple of dollars into our tip jar on the front page of theretrohour.com. It essentially means that Ravi and I don't have to completely pay for doing the show out of our own pockets. Really does make a difference. And every penny that we get goes back into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. So you can donate via PayPal or Bitcoin on our website, theretrohour.com. We've made it as easy as possible. It'll take you five seconds. Yeah. Your Bitcoin's probably not going to be worth as much now, but you can still donate it. goes with up it. and down. Yeah, it goes down. up and down. <laughs> Don't panic. <laughs> now, I want to say thank you so much this week. Earning their place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, Torstein Rodset. James Plant. Steve Piggott. And Wojcik Janks. Now we do, as always, apologise if we did completely mince any of those we, names. We try with our international <laughs> listeners. We really do try. So yeah, we, we hope it. we're pronouncing them correctly. <laughs> yeah, we're probably not, but we, don't, we do try our best. In the past, we have actually typed some names into YouTube to try and get the pronunciation properly. Yeah, it's then, a weekly challenge, isn't it, Dan? <laughs> Then we'll get a tweet and you said that completely wrong. Yeah. But, you know, at least we amuse. Yeah, yeah there you go. It, <laughs> might, it may be hilarious every week, actually. You never know. Uh, speaking of our incredible listeners, we do have um, someone who is a supporter of the Retro Hour, actually. You know, he's made the Hall of Fame several times. Has an amazing YouTube channel. Oh, yeah, good one. Chinny Vision. Oh, I love his channel. I was watching, actually, quite a few of his videos back to back the other night. Oh yeah, no, he's 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 fantastic, and the great thing about Chinivision is he loves the original hardware, yeah, and he always tries to get the best picture quality. Mm-hmm. So he sent us a really nice item here. Well, you can probably hear the paper, and it smells fresh. Ever sniff? Mmm, lovely. It's uh, <laughs> the 2018 Chinivision calendar, and it's got a nice picture of Alan Sugar on. But it's not. What, what kind of calendar is that, really? It's not Alan Sugar in different poses or uniforms. I bet you're disappointed about no. it. <laughs> it's, it's got some original hardware screenshots okay. uh, from 10 different formats. Let me uh, have a look. I haven't had a proper look at this. Yeah, of 8 and 16 bit machines. So this is that. It's a full size calendar. Oh, yeah. No, you this know. is like one of those old school calendars that you, you know, you actually cross off the day. Oh, cool. It's a proper retro one. And I haven't had one of those in my house for a long time, so it's it's going to be nice putting it up. And, of course, it's for 2018. Yeah, but the font, actually, that the calendar's printed in looks like the Commodore 64 font as well. Yeah, yeah, and cool. the, just the quality of it and the prints are just fantastic. So we're going to be giving one away on Facebook, so keep an eye out today. I'll be putting up a message and we'll be picking a winner out of the comments randomly. Do bear in mind that today, when the show comes out, we're probably on the way to my wedding. Yeah. So if it does look a little bit garbled, that's because Ravi's actually tried to post it on Facebook from his phone after about 10 pints. Yeah, yeah. So... Or, or, or two, knowing you. <laughs> oh, thanks. So it'll be up at some point over the weekend, I'm sure. Reveal my secret. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because we we've got to have had a Facebook page like since the show started. Still not even reached around 2,000 people on there, which, considering we get, you know, well over 25,000 listeners, is like, we need a few more on Facebook. Yeah. So all you've got to do is search for the Retro Hour podcast. Give our Facebook page a like. Ravi's going to get that calendar up there. Leave a comment on it over the next few days and we'll uh, pick someone at random if you want to get your hands on one. It looks really cool, actually, because I, I like that kind of, you know, it is like an old-school retro calendar, like you said. that you Yeah, totally, and you just don't get them. I uh, Actually, I get them from, like, you know, strange building companies and stuff now. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you have that up, but this is much nicer. You'd rather have Alan Sugar pinned up on your wall. Oh, totally. Any day. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Chinny Vision. If you haven't checked him out on YouTube as well, um, we'll put a link to his YouTube channel in this week's show, and it's definitely worth a watch. Now, of course, we've got my wedding today. There is something... I'm not going to say I'm more excited about next weekend, but, you know, it's almost there. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to kill you, mate. <laughs> Just a joke, of course. <laughs> next weekend, though, uh, we do have to save a little bit of energy because it's Play Expo Manchester. Oh, yes, and we're going to have the Retro Hour stage and... Just have some fantastic guests on that and panels. I'm 
really looking forward to it. You know, I think it's going to be hard to find time to play games, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you did say it then, the retro hour stage. And this thing is like a, a rock concert stage in the middle of a massive aircraft hangar. It's massive. Yeah, it's, it's going to be great. And we're going to be up there, you know, hosting a lot of the talks throughout the weekend. We've got our friends there from Retro Gamer magazine. Paul Drury's going to be there as well, who's a good friend of the show. We're going to be hosting a panel with the guys from Signosis talking about Lemmings, Wipeout, Shadow of the Beast. Oh, yeah, all of those kind of games when they went into the PlayStation period as well, so. Oh, Destruction Derby. Oh, I love, I love that, that game. Amazing. Uh, GoldenEye, you know, you everyone played that on the N64. That's going to be celebrating its 20th anniversary. There's going to be talk about that, hosted by the guys from Retro Gamer. Specky Sunday, uh, showing a bit of that new movie, Memoirs of a Spectrum Addict. Jim Bagley, of course, going to be on stage. Um, Jonathan Cordwell, lots of the Spectrum guys. That's probably going to be about an hour and a half to two hours, I think, on the Sunday. That, yeah, because so. they're going to be showing little bits of the movie as well, yep. which is just fantastic, because this movie's everywhere at the moment. Yeah, if you love the Spectrum, I mean, you cannot miss this on the Sunday. And also, I mean, we, we were, you know, chatting to Andy, the organiser, today, and somebody he's telling us about that I think is going to be amazing, this thing called, it's like an interactive adventure based on text adventures called Darkroom. Yeah, so this is going to be kind of a, a crazy interactive comedy kind of event that you could go and get involved with there. Uh, kind of like choose your own adventure. Yeah, well, from what I heard of it, it's kind of a bit like Nightmare, you know, if you remember watching that on TV. Oh, so, yeah, love that. Oh, that's going to be so much fun, so we definitely have to find time to get involved <laughs> yeah. in that when we're there. But it is coming up next weekend on the 14th and 15th of October. Um, we did have a competition running on the website that finishes tonight, so if you're in there quick, you might just be able to get in. If not, though, uh, we'll have a link on our website to book your tickets as well. And uh, come along and check out the Retro Hour Live, play some free arcades, buy some games, have a few drinks in town after. Should oh, be good. could it be great. Now, should we get into this week's stories? Yeah, totally. What if I said CDI to you, Dan? That weird old console that looked like a video recorder. No, a brand new console that's coming out, <laughs> but it's spelled C-S-E-E-D-I. Not CD, as in no, no. CDI. CDI, okay. a really dodgy one that just plays porn. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of those titles on the original CDI. Uh, but what is this then? So this is a new CD-based console that's been on Indiegogo. Uh, yeah, Jamez Grovedale's just let us know about it, one okay. of our listeners, and it's it's an emulator that interestingly doesn't play CDI games, right. so there's a, a strange connection there, but um, it's a CD-based console, so it supports kind of PlayStation, Turbo Graphics, Neo Geo, Sega CD, and it also plays ROMs. Okay. So you'll be able to load in 2600 Turbo Graphics, MAME stuff, you know, SNES, NES, Game Boy. What's quite interesting as well is it plays um, DOS PC titles as well. It's got a like DOSBox built in as well, which is quite Yeah, it's got DOSBox, but it's also got this crazy retro raid, um, adapter, which is sold separately. So you can basically plug cartridges into it as well. Cartridge, oh, original cartridges. Original oh, okay. ones, yeah. It's a pretty beastie-looking console, actually. It is, because the actual unit itself is kind of like a CD-ROM drive yeah. with extra bits added on. Obviously, it's not as beastie as the old CDI. No. But, but um, I can see the inspiration. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at the size of the of the actual cartridge, compare it to it, it's not that big. Well, they've got a cool logo on it as well, and uh, it looks like it uses Bluetooth um, controllers. The, you know, the pictures on here using a PlayStation 3, a DualShock 3 controller. And what I love about it is, I mean, it's on Indiegogo. At the time of recording this, it's got about three weeks left. 
Um, it's only about 28% of its target at the moment, so hopefully it's going to make it. I mean, we'll put a link to the Indiegogo in our show notes. But um, I love the fact that you scroll down the page. They've got pictures of, like, you know, DOS games, like Secret of Monkey Island playing on here as well. But then you go down, there's actually, like, a, a proper old-school 16-colour anim gif spinning around, like you would have seen on, like, you know, if this is on GeoCities or something. Oh, yeah, it's, it's got that kind of vibe. And what they're saying is, as well, they're saying it's a quad-core arm processor in there. Yeah. It's not Raspberry Pi. They love Raspberry Pi, but it's it's not one. And there is potential for future systems to be supported, which is does include the CDI, right? <laughs> uh, the PCFX, Jaguar CD, the Pippin, and oh, the Apple Pippin. Yeah, right? yeah, that is obscure. <laughs> PlayStation UMDs and the Dreamcast GD ROMs. Okay, so this could be a total like CD solution. You know, all your lasers are dying on your uh, older machines, maybe. Start playing your games on this one. Well, I've you know I've I've seen this on various Facebook groups, and I've I've seen a bit of negativity around it. Some people have been like, "Oh, what's the point? I've got a PC, I can just put emulators on there." But again, I mean, I think the appeal of these systems is emulators can be a pain to set up. Yeah, that's it. And you know, they've already sold out of the um, kind of beta system. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be going ahead, this one, definitely. Yeah, and it's like again, it's just plug and play by the looks of it. It takes all the hassle out of doing it, and. It's a nice package. It's you know the price isn't bad as well. I mean, hundred twenty five dollars plus shipping. Yeah, and uh, you know they could build on this foundation and just keep doing remote firmware updates and getting yeah. it going really well. It looks slick. I've got to say, you know, the user interface and stuff, and it's even got you know your home media center stuff in there if you want to stick Cody on and stream movies and that. Even just for that, you know, hundred dollars is not bad for a box. No, that no, not at thing, all. So, yeah. With emulation built in, so yeah, I, I think it's pretty cool. Now tell us about this. A SNES carry case. Okay, you remember the cool thing in the 90s. Everybody used to walk no, around. You wouldn't let me look at this, so this is, <laughs> I'm looking at it now. Everyone used to walk around with these giant kind of Game Gear carry case that had, like, battery packs in and all these extra things. I remember there was a, a crazy um, Game Boy one that you'd kind of open up and then you'd have all these mirrors and zoom features and everything. Well, this is a, a quite nice one that's um, coming out. It's called the PDP SNES Classic Carry Case. So it's essentially, yeah, a case to carry your Super Nintendo around your friend's house. <laughs> totally, yeah, but it's made of hard plastic, like all the old school ones were. It's got soft foam to protect your kind of stuff, because this is luxury, and it's also officially licensed by Nintendo. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And it, it's even got, like, I'm looking here, it reminds me a bit of, like, an old school school pack lunchbox. Yeah, yeah. No, it's totally got that feel. <laughs> and I would have totally took my sandwiches to school in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's got Super Mario World on the front of it. It's in, it's like the North America colours, isn't it? You know, with the kind of violet. Yeah. Um, rather than like the, the brighter primary colours that the, the British one had. But I think it's awesome, the space there for the SNES to go in the middle, the controllers in the side. I mean, even if, I mean, I can't imagine many fans of the Super Nintendo are carting them around the friend's house to stop over on Saturday night anymore. But even just to pack your system away and keep it nice and take it to shows and that kind of stuff. It's yeah, and it's, it's kind of old school in the 90s, and I just love that, you know, chunky, heavy plastic kind of feel. They've also got these slip-in sleeves that you can put in the front, um, yeah. which display the different games. So, you know, they've got a Star Fox 2 on there as well. So maybe you could be able to fit your minis in these two minis in there in the size of a normal one. Well, it's only $29.99 as well from Amazon, so it's uh, yeah, it's, it's reasonably priced. I mean, back in the day, I had... Do you remember... I don't know if you ever saw this. 
um, the Amiga, I think it was called like a Zap Sack or a Zappo Sack or something. Oh, dude, I saw an advert for the Zappo. You can buy a full Zappo costume, which <laughs> like is a T-shirt, a hat. You can have a big carry case and you can look awful <laughs> in primary colours yeah it was like it was like yellow and blue or something oh god yeah. horrible design I'd love one of those <laughs> Just oh, I wish around. I kept it yeah because I used yeah. to take I remember on a Sunday like my dad he'd work away when we were kids and on a Sunday we'd, we'd get the bus over to my grandma's house and she'd type all the cartoons in the week even though like me and my brother were probably I, I was about maybe 12, 13 and my brother was like he's a few, about five years younger than me but she'd always tape like you know if you watch like CBBC or CITV yeah. at like three o'clock yeah. when all that the preschool stuff was on like for like four year olds yeah. she'd tape that <laughs> wow not like Nightmare or Ghostbusters no, no, or anything no, no. It'd be nothing like, cool Rosie and Jim and that kind yeah. of thing yeah so we'd get around there and like, we'd be like oh, can, can we play on the computer instead grandma so I'd actually bring my Amiga on the bus in my Zappo back sack oh wicked <laughs> so, that is cool yeah I wish yeah. I still had it now major street cred Dan there. absolutely I was a oh, coolest kid in town in my shell suit as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I could do it all again I did for a couple of years. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is cool. So if, if you want to take your snares around your grandma's house on the weekend, this is what you need. Now, have you got a spare $2,000? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have got yourself a $2,200 Ultimate Hipster retro gaming machine. And there's only 25 of these in the world. What, what are they called? This is, uh, I think it's the Zeta system. The Zeta system. Now, this looks like an old... Ghetto blaster, a little, or a radio your mum used to have in the kitchen. Yeah, um, we covered a few of these kind of hipster systems, and they're basically really highly engineered and designed kind of games consoles. That a lot of them are for, I'd say, for fashion purposes and for the kind of exhibitions and that kind exhibitions. Of thing, yeah. yeah, but this one's really got a cool little kind of concept, and now it's as an old boombox ghetto blaster yeah that's the thing i mean it's not i mean when they say ghetto blaster i picture a ghetto blaster as being massive with like you know woofers and tweets you know a proper big yeah, thing yeah, used big to in the tape ghetto. deck everything this yeah. is what your mum got from argos yeah yeah <laughs> you know, you're listen, right. listen to like bruno brooks on radio one you're right this doesn't have mega bass <laughs> <laughs> but it is a fully functional console it is yeah so what you can do is you can take out the um speakers at the side and one of them is actually a projector Wow. Um, which does 640 by 480 and it's DLP as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of the exact perfect screen size for the old gaming system. Yeah, it doesn't want to be too high def. It's going to look jaggy and everything, isn't it? Yeah, and it's got um, batteries inside. You know, those kind of modern, what is it, 2,600 me- mega amps. Or... Okay, so it... essentially it's battery powered. Though you you can plug it in as well. You so can plug it in and it'll charge, you okay. know, for two hours it, it'll run. You can do this projection, but then also another part of it splits off and becomes little wireless controllers. It looks actually really slick and it emulates classic systems, I mean, from the 2600 up to the SNES, essentially. So it doesn't actually detail exactly which systems, but they're all the same as well. Well, I think it's really cool for... There's only going to be like 25 of these in the world, but they're also making accessories for it as well oh yeah <laughs> they've a joystick yeah i've got like a, a ma- mahogany kind of uh arcade fighting stick yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be rare i mean you know the concept itself's rare how many people are gonna buy the fighting stick so i think again it's um it's not something you're gonna buy just to play sonic the hedgehog or something on is it but no but it's it's a really nice concept i think it's it's like coming from the kind of switch area where you can take different bits off and do different things, but this time they've got a projector in, which yeah. is just a totally new thing. I've always wanted this, you know. 
a projector on your phone that you could just put down and then boom onto any surface or any wall. That'd be great. Well, this is on but a... not for two grand. <laughs> yeah, well, this is on Kotaku and the top comment on here by a guy called a Dr. Nine. He goes, $2,000 is well worth the reaction of every co-worker when I bust out the Zeta at lunch in the canteen <laughs> and do a quick game of Marvel Heroes on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> And they start getting like the cheesy like what's it fingers on it and all that. Oh know? god, but, yeah, yeah. But it's a piece of art, really. But I think it's awesome, isn't it? You know, it's cool that people can, you know, actually get stuff like this made. Yeah, I wouldn't want to play it though if I spent that much no, on it. I'd, I'd just keep it there. Yeah. <laughs> now the Dreamcast is obviously a system that we're both very fond of. Um, yeah, I've always loved Sega consoles, and the Mega Drive is probably joint with the Dreamcast as my favourite. But it, yeah, I, I just think the Dreamcast was so ahead, like yeah. and. I know it was the last the last breath of Sega, but um, what a great last breath that was. You know, yeah. the fact that I could play Soul Edge or Soul Calibur Blade or whatever it was called. Soul uh, Calibur. <laughs> yeah, there's so many versions. But uh, the fact I could play that in, you know, uh, 4.8EI, mm-hmm. it's just like, wow. And it was, I mean, it's a bit of a techno tragedy, isn't it, the Dreamcast? It was a system that all Sega fans thought, right, this is going to be their big one now. You know, it was better than the PS1 when well, it, it came Well, it was out. kind of privately financed by a massive Sega fan. I don't think Sega would have been able to buy it out, and they knew that it wouldn't be a massive success, I think. I'd, I'd read somewhere that, you know, this guy just loved Sega so much. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, now, if you are a fan of the Dreamcast, um, other platforms have had this kind of, you know, you could say it's a labour of love, really, an ode to the system. Mm-hmm. Someone's actually done a book, and this is... Um, well, you know, we've met this guy before, haven't we? Yeah, Read Owning Memory. And, uh, you know, they've done some fantastic titles. The Bitmap Brothers book oh, yeah, yeah. was just beautiful. And remember, they had the, the hand-drawn art of kind mm. of uh, Speedball 2 and all of that that you could buy with it. So this is going to be a really good piece, and it's probably better than my uh, scrappy history of the Dreamcast. <laughs> well, this is Sega Dreamcast, The Collected Works. Now, it is, again, it's one of these um, illustration books and it's um, kind of the history of the cult games on it. And again, I mean, you know, which, which again is really cool. It is officially a collaboration with Sega. So they're endorsing this and they're working with them on it. It's fantastic. And, you know, uh, a very interesting thing is you're talking about these games at the moment. I've noticed that there's been a lot of improvements with the emulators of Dreamcast now. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these titles are kind of coming out looking HD and looking fantastic. Like Shenmue, for example. That's one of them there. That's going to be... Shenmue 3 is coming out, isn't it? So, you know, these are all going to be a lot more popular, these titles, by the time this book actually gets published. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of like the Dreamcast now. I mean, obviously, when it came out, it had a... It was a bit of a niche audience, you know, select few fans who loved the system. Then it kind of faded away and kind of got forgotten a bit by the mainstream. But I think thanks to stuff like YouTube and, you know, there's podcasts like Dreamcast Junkyard. We've met those guys. Oh, yeah. Really good show if you love the Ad- Dreamcast. Adam Karilic as well. He's, you know, Adam, keeping yeah. it going. Who's, we've had on the show before, haven't we? Yeah. Adam Karilic. And, uh, you know, games like, obviously, said Shenmue, Jet Set Radio. I love that game. So much fun. Uh, Crazy Taxi, Sonic Adventure, Space Channel 5. Um, <laughs> even the fishing game I've got. Which, oh, Power Stone as well, you know. Fantasy Star Online. I mean, you know, the, I think the Dreamcast, I may be wrong in saying this, but I think it was the first system that actually came, first games console, with a bundled modem in every unit. Yeah, and then they eventually had the broadband adapter, didn't they? So Which you I've could, got. Oh, yeah. you, you have one, yeah. So, you know, this was a revolutionary system that you could... And, God, the amount of 
add-ons and plugins that you could have for that. God, what was it like? Fishing rods, bongos. Yeah. <laughs> it was probably a skateboard. There's so many weird things you could have. Well, I got the um, <laughs> a little microphone addition to go in the uh, VMU. And so, shouts at Seaman. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I can. It's a weird game that is. Yeah. But again, it was, Nimoy. <laughs> but it was just a platform that was very creative, and very weird. And I think it is a perfect platform for a book that kind of you know celebrates that really weird kind of style. You know, you look at the Dreamcast. A lot of their games very heavy Japanese influence on it, obviously. Yeah. And you know, I think graphically they were beautiful, and it's nice to see them you know in, in this form and really getting some respect. So this book at the moment it is a Kickstarter. And um, <laughs> at the time of recording this, it's still got over a week to go. And they're already, you know, £93,000 over there. Uh, there's only one to £68,000 gold, so it's already well over target. So it's going to happen. Yeah, I think the way that the books are going now is they're kind of, it's like they're starting from the 8-bits and they're going yeah. through and then they're going to start covering all the consoles. We may be getting Xbox books soon coming. <laughs> I want know. my Jaguar book first. Oh yeah, someone's got to do it. You need your Jag book. I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right then, thank you for checking out episode number 91 of the Retro Hour podcast. I better go get married. <laughs> yeah. And you guys can enjoy our interview with the wonderful Walter Day. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, the legendary Walter Day. Yeah, I'm honored to be on the show. And based on what I've heard from other people, this is a legendary show. Well, Walter, obviously, we're going to get some uh, you know, really interesting stories from Twin Galaxies, obviously, those early arcade games. But what I thought might be quite interesting to find out is your earliest memory of an electronic game. Well, I do, I do have an earliest memory of an electronic game. It was 1972, and I was on a campus someplace, and uh, they had a Pong there. And I remember playing it just once, and I remember being very terrible at it, and I found it kind of intimidating. And I just didn't have the, I did not have the skill set even to play Pong. <laughs> <laughs> and so I walked away from it. Not, not, it wasn't anything that I would ever want to do again at that time. It wasn't. It wasn't for me a, uh, you know, a fun, fun, uh, fulfilling, ex- experience that I would want to be actively pursuing video games. So that was my experience way back in 1972. Next time video games come up on, the, on, on my radar was around 1980-81, and I was in a bowling alley and people were playing Pac-Man, and I still remember craning my neck, looking over someone's shoulder and watching them do the maze. Hmm. And I wasn't at all, all attracted personally into playing that video game, but I watched it for a little bit, uh, and, uh, whenever it was, it was sometime in 1980. Uh, but then I moved, to, I was in Fairfield, Iowa, which is a small town in Iowa. And uh, there's a university there. Uh, uh, it's a famous university because it teaches consciousness-based education. In other words, the education it teaches includes things like physics and chemistry and computer science, but it also includes the information and the science of how to increase the consciousness of your mind, which would result in more intelligence and more creativity. So it's a very, very interesting curriculum. So I was at a university that taught that, and its main thing that it taught, of course, was transcendental meditation, which many of you people have already heard. Hmm. I practice transcendental meditation. We'll get to that a little later. But essentially, uh, there uh, on that campus, they had a Pac-Man machine, 
it wasn't much later that I moved away from Fairfield, Iowa, went down to Houston, Texas, where I became an oil broker. An oil broker is a person who works in the oil spot market, where all the traders and the majors, majors means, you know, Exxon, Mobil, Shell, Texaco. But I got bored with it, especially since I couldn't make any deals because I was in charge of something called six oil, which was the big, heavy, crude oil that would be burned in like a big, big furnace in, in the bottom of a huge installation or, or a big library building or, or, or a public school or something like that. And I couldn't make any sales. So I started thinking of doing other things, and I and another person decided to make a who's who in the petroleum industry. And we were actively working on that for weeks and weeks when he suddenly turned to me one night and said, boy, I can't look at another one of these oil industry biographies. I've got to go out and play Space Invaders. <laughs> and I stopped dead in my tracks and said, what? What are Space Invaders? Well, he took me to a big arcade called Malibu Grand Prix, on the, the highway belt that goes around the outside of Houston. And it's a famous arcade chain because they, they really were, I don't know if they literally pioneered, but they were one of the pioneers of like third size, I think they were one third size gasoline driven racing automobiles that you got in there and raced around the track. And it was there that they also had a big arcade full of probably 150 to 250 games. When I walked in the door, the first thing I saw was the big bank of Berserk machines. Everybody remember Berserk, I presume? Yeah. yeah. Uh, about eight or 10 or 12 of them in a row. That's how big of a deal video games were back then. You could have 10 of a copy of a game in an arcade way back then. And this is like June or May of 1980. And they'd all be making money because video games were phenomenally big. So uh, initially you kind of dismissed the video game arcade cabinets uh, like Pong and Pac-Man, which seemed a bit different. Um, why did you then kind of see potential in these later arcade machines? Well, it was very interesting because when I walked in the door... I noticed that crowds would gather around certain players. And I went over and watched. And I saw the heroic dynamics of being a great video game player. And part of me thought, oh, I, I like to be able to do that. You know, be the center of attention, but also excel at something. Just the concept of excelling at something and seeing how you can unfold your full potential. Now, back when I was back at the University of Fairfield, uh, when we take our classes and they would talk about the results that would come from practicing transcendental meditation, one of the main results that's always discussed and people tell about their experiences with this is that it'll unfold your full potential so that you can become better and better and better at whatever you did. And I was very curious about how, how much just improvement of talent or consciousness could happen from playing video games and then playing them well so that you'd be a top, top player. So I was very intrigued with the art uh, of excellence in video game playing. So I started watching, and this was the key. This was actually the key to starting the scoreboard later because I was very, very intrigued by excellence in action as found in the process of conquering and defeating video games. So uh, I love video games so much I started playing them regularly and then even more regularly. Finally, I moved back to Fairfield, Iowa, and I had an alternative business where I would sell old historical newspapers. And we're talking about not yesterday's newspapers or last year's newspapers. We're talking about newspapers as old as the year 1590. I had a German newspaper from 1590. But I had piles and piles of the London Chronicle from the 1770s, piles and piles of the London Gazette from the 1666 and 67 and 1672, tons of newspapers from all over the place. And I would buy them 
sometimes from dealers out of London, and I would resell them to collectors and to history teachers and to libraries. So I had hundreds of thousands of old newspapers, and, uh, and I started a tour in the summer of 1983. Actually, started in March of 80, uh, 81, I mean, the, the, the spring and summer of 81. And I toured around the United States, and I appeared on many, many TV shows, newspaper interviews, radio shows, magazine interviews, uh, talking about uh, the newspapers that would give you the hidden side to history. And you could find out interesting stories as portrayed and understood by the people themselves who went through the experiences at the time they happened. So it was a very interesting take, a completely different, like really alive kind of like version of history that you'd find in the old newspapers. Because when you read a textbook, it's kind of an edited version down of a, of a historical incident. So it has more life to it when you read the old newspaper account. And of course, quite often they're extremely inaccurate, the newspaper accounts, but they're fun to read. Hmm. So I was doing this, but as I would travel around the nation doing this, I would go to as many arcades as I could because I was completely in love with the video games. And by that time, I was now playing uh, a lot of Pac-Man, a lot of Centipede, a lot of Gorf and Galaxian. I'm becoming better and better and better at them. But I would watch wherever I went and see what the high scores were to beat and also watch the champions. So I was getting more and more intrigued by just the art of excellence in video game playing. And I started taking notes. I started a log. I started taking notes and writing down scores and memorizing scores and watching people play games. And, uh, and I went from arcade to arcade. And I remember in Salt Lake City, Utah, TV station wanted to meet me. And I insisted that they come and meet me in the arcade. It was a huge downtown city arcade. So the TV cam- cameras came down there and interviewed me in the aisles between the video games and stuff like that. And, uh, and then when I got to Southern California, like around July of 81, uh, well, no, actually, right before I got there, there was a rumor of someone who'd get the highest score imaginable on Pac-Man, like hundreds of thousands. So I started going from arcade to arcade, trying to track down that rumor, until finally I found the arcade in a town called Sandy, Utah, where this guy allegedly could get these high scores. But when I came in and announced that I'd travel far to try and find this Pac-Man expert, they all went cold on me and wouldn't give me any information. They, they, for some reason, they wanted to protect the guy or save his, or, or save him from having his tricks get out into the public or something like that. Wow. Wasn't quite certain why, but they simply, you know, stopped me dead in my tracks. And I remember one guy smirking at me because he, he, because he knew I, I wanted this information to meet this person and learn from him, but they wouldn't let me learn from him. So, uh, so that was my voyage, watching the champions play, even trying to track down a legendary Pac-Man player. You know, they have later movies mm. that actually talk about someone tracking down a great video game player or something. I had never thought of this before until recently, but I actually did that long before the movies ever even composed of the idea. So how about that, huh? <laughs> well, you made an interesting point about, you know, those arcade memories, which and I think we've all got, remembering like the peak of the arcade era. And it could be, I mean, you know, it could maybe be a kid that wasn't the coolest kid in school. He wasn't particularly athletic or sporty, but he could be the coolest guy in the arcade. And if you were amazing at that game, you could, like you said, get a crowd of people around you all night. Okay, here's an important thing. Let's give this five stars, because I, I consider this a five-star point of, of historical importance. Right now... You'll see the, the, the you'll see the news media ooing and aahing over stadiums getting filled with people to watch competitive gaming in person, or to watch it through uh, you know through through a hookup through a, through a, through a video hookup, or to watch it streaming or watch it online. 
Quite often, there can be special special video game playing events where there'll be a lot of people signing in on either through streaming or either a pay-for-view thing or actually being in person in a stadium. And they're worrying, wowing that, wow, video games have come of age. They're now becoming an audience, uh, a spectator sport. Well, the spiritual, spiritual flagship of that has always been in place. And I don't know if you remember this firsthand, but I saw it again and again and again and again and again, especially when Twin Galaxies started up and we went on the road with our team and everything. Wherever you went, whatever arcade it was, if someone was great at a game and they were really putting on a show, there would be a big crowd around them. There would be a lot of people who were completely enthralled with the experience of being you know, a spectator a spectator watching a video game champion play on that high, high level. That psychological trait was already in place in the public way back in the age of the arcade, even though people are thinking it's some new development that's happening as part of the business plan of esports. Oh, wow, spectators. But uh, I think you might remember this firsthand, that there would be a big crowd around anybody who's really good in going after a world, especially if they're going after world record and it's publicized, there would be a big crowd around them because... Uh, a video game champion has always been a thing of intrigue. And the special thing to notice, Dan, is that if there could have been the technology way back then in 1982 and 83 to have the greatest Pac-Man player go for the world record or show his skills off or the greatest Donkey Kong player show all his tricks or go for the world record, there would have been 50,000 arcades subscribing to it and signing up to it and all the players who have been on the edge of their seats in every arcade they're watching as a group on the screen, yet that technology had been available. So, so that's why I say this is a five-star thing, because we have to hand it to the golden age of gaming, because that important aspect of modern esports, spectator sport, it was always alive even back then, and it is today. But, of course, the technology is turning into a monster of a business plan, of course. Does it make sense to you? Absolutely. And I think you, you make a really interesting point there as well, that, you know, if that could have been beamed into arcades all around the world, it's, that could have been massive, couldn't it? But it's the technology wasn't oh, man. there. Oh, Billy Mitchell going after his world record uh, on, on Donkey Kong? That would have been followed by 100,000 arcades around the world. Yeah. It would have been massive. Well, let's talk about Twin Galaxies. Um, you opened that in 1981? Uh, Twin Galaxies opened up on November 10th, 1981. And we're having a party in Ottumwa, Iowa, at the town of its birth, uh, on, on that weekend. The 36th anniversary of Twin Galaxies. And, of course, many people are familiar with the Life magazine photograph. That was November 7, 1982. So the 35th anniversary of that is about to happen. And that will also be an attempt, a reunion of all the people who are in that famous photograph coming together in Ottumwa uh, to have a reunion photograph uh, uh, on the same week in the, twin, uh, the, the anniversary week in the Twin Galaxies opened up, November 10th through 12th, 2017, in Ottumwa, Iowa. We're going to have all these people coming back to recap their experience uh, being in the original photograph. At the same time, there'll be a big celebration. Plus, the International Video Game Hall of Fame is operating there out of Ottumwa, and they're going to have induction ceremonies for the classes of 2016 and 2017. So Twin Galaxies as a cultural phenomena, is very much alive and well. And its, uh, and its uh, legacy, I guess, is becoming revered far and wide because it did such important things when, it was, when those things were seminal and original. Well, you know, going back to the start, like in 81, why did you want to own your own arcade? I was living in Fairfield, Iowa, 
And I was there, as I told you, because that's where the, the university called Maharishi University, Maharishi University of Management was. And uh, that's where I was studying consciousness-based education. And, uh, but I also had to earn money. So I thought, well, I got to do something. And I thought, oh, my God, I can open up Arcade because that'll kill two birds with one stone, meaning I, I could uh, hopefully it would make some money. But more than that, the biggest reason I opened up the Arcade is it, it was an excuse to be able to play video games more and more and more and more and more. So uh, when we opened up the Arcade, I'd be there shoulder to shoulder with the kids playing till 2 in the morning every night, learning all their tricks. And I think there was a point there when I was the best 32-year-old video game player in the world because uh, I would know all the tricks that would be taught to me by all the champions who would come through. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember? Car- remember the first Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah. I don't know if you remember that or not, but there's a moment when Jack Sparrow meets Orlando Bloom for the first time, and he's like a blacksmith who works on swords and fixes swords, and they get in a sword fight, and Orlando Bloom expresses like, "Why are you so good?" And he was good because he would learn from everybody who came through with all their different styles and all their different points of view. And then Jack Sparrow just looked at him and says, you really got to get out and date or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, that was what it was like. All the tops coming through, I would learn their tricks. So I became formidable on all these games that would only be, uh, would only be uh, uh, you know, conquered by the, the champs from around the nation and even from other countries. How did you go about kind of promoting and getting the word out about Twin Galaxies back then, you know, all pre-internet and... Well, isn't that interesting to think that all that happened to Twin Galaxies and there was no internet? Like, how could this possibly happen? When I see the ease with which people can get their business plans out or they can do fundraisers just like that, I snap my finger, just like that, or they can get people involved in their activities just like that because of the internet and Facebook and... Google, all sorts of stuff, and Yahoo, and YouTube, and streaming. Uh, how in the world did it happen? Well, I'm sure I had a lot of, I'm sure I had some creativity I brought to the table, but it really was just the dynamics of history that were happening. It's just that the golden age of video game playing, and the advent of video game playing and competitive video game, it was trying to happen, and it was going to find some way to make itself happen. It was going to find a, a tool or an avenue or a conduit. And just by some stroke of karma, to use that word, that conduit just happened to work through me and Twin Galaxies. On January 18, 1982, an edition of Time magazine came out that had a cover story on the amazing growth of the arcade, the video arcade world. And in this seven or eight or nine page article, there was, a, there was a feature box on a kid in Chicago named Steve Jurassic, and he got a high score on Defender where he kept the game going on one quarter for, I forget now, it was either 14 hours for 15 million points or 15 hours for 14 million points. Actually, I'm going to look it up while I talk to you. But essentially, uh, okay, he played for like 14 hours and got 15.9 million points, and that was mind-boggling because no one really thought much about marathoning a video game on one quarter and really conquering it like that. And I was absolutely intrigued with that because it was completely down the alley of my thought process already of having been monitoring excellent players when I was on the road. And so a kid comes up to me with this magazine and says, look at this guy with a score on Defender. I can beat that. And I looked at him in disbelief and I said, oh, yeah? Well, prove it. And so over the course of that weekend, 
if I remember right, he got 24 million points wow. and broke Steve Jurassic's record by 9 million points. Uh, but what was interesting about it was this, and this is a very, very telling point, Dan, very telling. And I called up the local newspaper, and I called up the local radio station during the time that he's actually playing and building up a score. And the reaction was extreme. Like, they were so interested in this, and there's such a big story to them, that they ran over and started covering the story. The guy on the radio started getting it out. Before I knew it, it was going around the airwaves all over the Midwest. I started getting calls from radio and TV in St. Louis and Kansas City and Chicago and Des Moines and other places. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. The news media ate it up. It was a big deal. Man conquers machine. Video game superstar emerges. You know, this kind of thing. Video game superstar emerges. I can't remember what the actual headlines were, but it was that kind of concept. This guy was conquering one of these newfangled, scary, uh, space-age, super fic- uh, science fiction kind of machines, because it's still new, all this stuff back then. And, uh, and by the time the weekend was over, it was a story that was all over the place, including on the wire services. So that Monday morning, I called up Williams Electronics that made the fender and said, uh, we got the scores. Do you know if this is the world record? And the lady said at the phone, we get these kind of calls almost every day, and we don't know. No one's keeping track of the records. We have no idea what the world record would be. We get these calls every day. And so then I call another manufacturer. I call Nintendo and ask them about scores. And they say the same thing. We don't have any idea. No one's keeping track of the records. So I called a couple of magazines. I called Replay Magazine and Playmeter Magazine, which still exist today. They're co- they're, they are the magazines for the coin-op uh, vending industry. And both of those people said, we don't have any idea, but we call get called almost every day from our cage wanting to know what the record is on this or that. By the time I was done making the phone calls, I called seven manufacturers in those two magazines, nine phone calls, and all of them said they have no idea. So I sat there thinking about this, and I had our scoreboard up on the wall, and I had my notes of all the stuff I found on the road, and I thought about it all night, and the next day I called back all nine of those phone calls and says, we're the, we're your, we have a scoreboard here. We're, we're keeping track of the records. And all nine of those people on the other end of those nine phone calls said, wow, that's great. This is wonderful. What we'll do is we'll put your, and they said, thank you for this service. We'll put your number and your name here at our front Rolodex so that our, that our secretary who answers the phones for the company or the magazine will refer people to you. Thank you very much. And then one guy says, uh, by the way, who are you? And off the top of my head, I had to say something. So I said, oh, we're the Twin Galaxies National Scoreboard. And that was it. I hung up the phone. The phone calls had made 30, it cost, took 30 minutes to do. I went back into the arcade to continue playing a desperate game of gore. 30 minutes later, someone, one of my workers tapped me on the shoulder and said, there's someone on the phone. They're calling it long distance. It's about a score on Galaga. And I went to the phone, and sure enough, someone from the Nashville, Tennessee area, which is like, you know, a thousand miles away, essentially, was calling because they had a Gallagher world record that they were hoping was a world record to report to me. And they were told by Midway Games, you know, you know, Midway Games, that this is the place you call for the world records. So it took 30 minutes before the first phone call came in. It was kind of stunning, but I looked up at her scoreboard, and the guy's score, if I remember right, was something like 555,000 points just a few thousand points behind our night watch, night, our night attendant. So I sat into the phone in somber, serious tones. I said, you, sir, have the world's second highest score. 
And he goes, oh, my God. He says, I'll, I'll call you back. I'll call you back. I'm going to go back and beat that. And the next day, I call back with a higher score. So that is how it all happened. And from there, the magazines would begin to refer Hollywood people to us, magazines to us, newspapers to us, arcades to us, so that within weeks, we'd be getting a dozen, a dozen phone calls a day. Within a month or two, we'd be getting 30 or 40 phone calls a day. Uh, within a month or two, we started getting letters in the mail. Then the magazines started carrying our records, and the newspapers would give regular reports, and then the USA Today reported it, and then Life magazine called up because they were told we were the people who represented all the players of the world. And then That's Incredible came because they heard we were the people who represented all the players of the world. Then the mayor of Ottumwa, Iowa, declared us the video game capital of the world. Uh, the president of Atari came from California, declared us the video game capital of the world. And the leader, the, the executive director of the Amusement Game Manufacturers Association was there also from Washington, D.C., and proclaimed us the video game capital of the world. And so it went from there. And the next thing we know, Guinness is involved with us, and they decided that our protocol for adjudication was the right one, and they felt safe accepting our scores, and that's how it began to appear in Guinness. And so that there in a nutshell is how Twin Galaxies came to be birthed. And at each step of the way, and here's why I said at the beginning that I don't know if anybody's smart enough to make this happen. It's more the forces of nature in action and having their will, doing their way. Because every step along the way, the whole thing could have ended or something could have happened to make it stop or fail or just not come through. But every single step along the way, everything bounced in favor of twin galaxies of the scorekeeper being brought to the next stage the next step, the next stage. So uh, I'm pleased I've been a part of it, and I know I have some creativity I bring to the table, but I know that it was a bigger picture and a bigger phenomena than just anything that Walter Day cooked up. Well, Walter, you've obviously observed, you know, probably thousands and thousands of video game players and amazing players at that. What do you think makes a great video game player? Well, there's a bunch of characteristics, and... I began to learn about these characteristics when I was back there at uh, M. Maharishi University of Management studying there because they would, they would define some of the qualities that you see that you'd expect in a nervous system that was functioning in a normal way free of stress. One is that, because uh, the understanding is that when people do TM, that's what they call it, TM, uh, it would relieve the stress so that they'd have a more normal functioning nervous system that would manifest in these ways. One is they'd have... Uh, better eye-hand coordination so they can really zip that hand around and make a precision, almost like, almost like, a, almost like a, a person who shoots rifles at targets at long, 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 long distance. They have to be absolutely precise because if they're off one fraction, the gun's off one fraction, that'll end up being 10 inches off by the time it reaches the target. So they have to have precise eye-hand coordination. And that's enhanced through the practice of TM. So I was already alert to these things when I started thinking about, well, what is it that makes a person a great game player? And also they have to have good mind-body coordination so they can actually whip that hand around fast and, uh, and, uh, and get it in the right place and, uh, and then have a good you know, eye-hand coordination, mind-body coordination. And they have to have fast reaction time. And that's another thing they used to study when they, were practicing, when they were studying people who were doing TEM is that they'd have fast reaction time. And deeper than that, deeper than anything, you know Tom Brady, the American football player? Well, when, when people critique his success in football, they say that he has this very clear, comprehensive view or understanding of what's going on around him in the field. 
that seems to be more right on and spot on than many of the other game uh, football players who are, who are the quarterbacks. And because of that, he's just able to recognize what the plays are faster that the opposite team is throwing up against them. And uh, with these cognitive abilities and all this high-hand coordination, this fast reaction time, with these cognitive recognition, recognition abilities, he's able to just have a better career than many other quarterbacks. That goes also for video game players. There's some deep level of intelligence, some comprehensive intelligence that they have that allows them to just see the game in a different way that other people will see it, whereas the intelligence of their brain is sorting out the dynamics of what they see on the screen in such a way that they're recognizing what the next important thing is they have to do in order to survive and be successful with the game. And a good example I have is Robotron. Have you ever played Robotron? Oh, a classic game. What what a mind-boggling mess that can be for most people. (laughs) But the top, top players, it's almost like the game is moving in slow motion. And they're actually seeing in detail what the next thing is they have to do for the most success. And that comes out of the way the brain operates. And that's the deepest, deepest quality that I I recognize will be in the championship gamers. Some cognitive ability that's deeply embedded as part of their actual level of consciousness slash intelligence. So I don't know if, if I'm making explaining something that makes sense to you or not, but this is how I've seen it after all these years of watching the top players and the players who aren't quite as good and the players who are even less good. Because me, me, when I see Robotron and try to play it, it's a big mess. It's like a big bunch of soup, and I have no idea what to do next. It's just a mess that surrounds me and kills my man, you know? It's, it's very odd because kind of game players would get in that meditative kind of state and they'd be just focused on it and have you ever seen any incidents of uh, you know people's getting distracted or losing their focus during one of these games and then totally messing up for something that happened in the room or something oh yeah that's it in fact you've hit on a very very important point when a person who's operating on that high level uh, suddenly starts losing it their hands may still be just as fast and their eyes may still see just as clear, so they could have a good hand cord, but something changed on the level of their brain, its coherence and its ability to interpret what it's seeing on the screen. So in other words, when someone starts going downhill, it's on the level of the mind that the degradation's happening first. It's almost like they're falling apart mentally, and then it, then it dominoes out to the level of the hands getting slower, the eyes becoming blurry, or something like that. But it will always be on the level of the, and from my experience anyway, from what I can see, is that it's, a, it's, a, it's like on a mental level that starts, stops losing its sharpness and its ability to, to recognize uh, what's going on in the gameplay. Well, Twin Galaxies hosted one of the first televised video game world championships in 1983. How did you manage that then? Well, first of all, the Life magazine people contacted us and they said, well, we understand that you're the person to call, that you're the one who coordinates all the, like, the game-playing activity for everyone, and you're the center of game-playing activities. And, and they said, we want to do a special feature. for our, And every year, Life magazine would have a year-in-review edition. And I think traditionally, if I understand correctly, it would always be the January 1983 edition. So they start working on that. And uh, the January 1983 edition was going to be the year in review, 1982 year in review edition. 
And video games have become such a big deal that they felt it important to not only do a little story on it, but to do a two-page, almost literally the almost literally the centerfold page, the centerfold spread. It wasn't quite in the centerfold, but it was a two-page spread because that's how valuable of a story they considered video games at that point in history. And they, but they didn't know what they were going to do. So they called me up and I said, "We have a stable of champions. We have all the all-stars. I can bring all the all-stars here." And we're the crossroad. I told them, we're the crossroad of the video game world. This is where people come to show off their stuff and take on all comers. In fact, we, we refer to ourselves as the Dodge City of the video game world. You know what that means, don't you? Dodge City of the video game world? It's where the, in the old days, in the wild west of America, Dodge City where, was where all the gunslingers went. Right. You know, in the Western movies. So this is where the top guns in the video game play would come to face off. And they were intrigued by this. And... Uh, and so they still weren't sure what they were going to do, but I convinced them they should come, and I'd invite all the video game stars. And so they said, okay. So first, at first the parents didn't believe it, so I had to have Life Magazine also submit a letter and have a person they could call to explain that, yes, indeed, your son coming to Twin Galaxies in Ottumwa, Iowa, will indeed be appearing in a Life Magazine photograph, so please allow him to come. So they came. 16 of them came. I think I invited 22, but 16 were able to show up. They were all world champions or multiple world champions in different games. And I remember paying for all their hotel rooms, but it was worth the investment because, because that really, really put competitive gaming on the map. Uh, so essentially they, they came, and still, when the photographers arrived for life, they still weren't sure what to do. At first, they went out into the cornfields to see if it was possible to bring video games out on the cornfields and photograph the uh, players there because they were intrigued by the fact that the crossroads, the mecca of the video game world, was in a small town in Iowa that was not part of Silicon Valley or, or L.A. or New York, that it was in a small town in Iowa surrounded by cornfields. So they wanted to bring the video games out into the cornfields and photograph the players there. But then they decided it would be too much work and too much danger. And so they decided to have the games brought out in the middle of the street, and that's where the famous photograph happened, in the street, outside of Ottumwa, on November 7, 1982, 35 years ago. And, uh, and uh, they did that because they had been referred to by the media and by the, uh, by the video game manufacturers that we were the place to go. Now, the same thing suddenly happened with Life Magazine. Uh, that, that's incredible. That's Incredible decided that it was worthwhile doing something really big with video games because they had become larger than life. And again, the video game industry, which at that time was the Koenop vending industry, uh, they recommended that they call Twin Galaxies uh, because we were the place that was organizing, you know, twin, uh, video game playing as an actual organized uh, uh, sport. So they called up, and they still weren't certain what they were going to do. And I said, look, here's my idea for a contest. We'd have all the top, top all-stars come for an invitational, and they would come and face off for a world championship. And uh, we'd only invite the top, top people who are multiple game world record holders. And at first they didn't like it, but then I kept talking at them about this. And finally, after many phone calls, I said, okay, so I'm going to come out there. The actual producer came out, and we went over the math. We went over a trial a, a trial edition of how the contest could work and he was satisfied with enough and he was satisfied with the way a tumble looked and which when galaxies looked that he thought it would be an excellent excellent uh, uh, venue for the championship and by absolute coincidence at the moment we're there finalizing this and figuring out the details of it suddenly someone walks in the door with the life magazine 
that came out literally that hour, and it hit the city that hour, and he opened it up, and he saw the picture, and he turned to me, and he says, that's incredible. And I laugh and says, oh, yeah? Because, you know, she's the producer from That's Incredible. And then he laughed when he realized <laughs> what he'd said. And uh, it was, that's what really sold it. When he saw the Life magazine in his hands, and he realized that this was the place and the only place that this championship should be held. So they came there, and we got the whole video game industry completely behind us so that manufacturers loaned, I think it was five of five different games. I think we had Donkey Kong Jr., we had Frogger. Uh, these were brand new games brought in and taken fresh, brand new out of the boxes. So it was pretty amazing. Well, I mean, talking about legendary events that you did at Twin Galaxies, I mean, you know, we've read about lots of them. Obviously, the Iron Man contest is pretty legendary. Tell us about that. I wanted to do that for a long time. I finally found a company called Sports Achievements Awards that was out of, I think it was Santa, San, uh, uh, I think it was out of Santa Monica. And I had to pay $500 to buy an insurance policy and that they agreed that if someone reached 100 hours on a single quarter without losing their game, that person would win $10,000. If numerous people crossed over it, then they would win a proportion of it. They would split it in some way. Uh, and it started all at one moment. And it started, if I remember right, on January 7th or 8th. Oh, no, no, July 7th or 8th, 1985. But it wasn't at Twin Galaxies. It was under the sponsorship of Twin. It was a Twin Galaxies event but it was held in an arcade called Johnny Z's up in Victoria, British Columbia. And we had eight or nine contestants. One of the contestants uh, was a Japanese man who we never, ever heard from again. And uh, his whole, his game he chose to try and reach 100 hours was to play Ms. Pac-Man. And he was going to try and stay avoiding the four ghosts in the tunnels by staying in the tunnels for the whole 100 hours, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it was kind of interesting because uh, in the course, after about three or four hours into the contest, and he's still going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, his family comes in, and they start having a big fight around him and a big argument. <laughs> Apparently, he was doing something they didn't approve of, and they're trying to get him to leave the game, but he refused. Then finally, more family members came in and began to cry beside him. Then they began to shout and argue, and some began to cry. It was an amazing spectacle of family dynamics right there in the middle of the contest, right beside his machine. Finally, he left the machine and said, kind of downtrodden or sullen, he said, I must go now. My family needs me. And he was gone. And we didn't even know who that guy is. We never heard from him again. But it was a very interesting way for him to try and, uh, you know, play 100 hours on a game. How how did the kind of rise of the internet and maybe even early BBSs um, affect Twin Galaxies or the kind of scorekeeping? I got very tired from it and in January of 1986. I just walked away from Twin Galaxies. The arcade continued. The arcade closed for a while, then it reopened under Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell personally owned the arcade for years. But during that time, the, arc, the, the scoreboard wasn't active because I walked away from it and I went out and I got involved in some other stuff that is that, that my inclination to be a historian uh, kind of led me off. And I went out and I started buying high school and selling, buying and selling high school yearbooks. Now, my understanding is, is that high school yearbooks are not a real popular thing in Great Britain. Most people, uh, I think it might have changed a bit, but years ago, schools didn't issue hardbound books at the end of a year. There was like an annual. And then after being away from Twin Galaxies for about nine years, eight and a half years, 
I started up again and just continued right where I left off and, uh, and scorekeeper for the world, sort of, except that uh, a different reality was in place and that the Internet now existed. I had a lot of catching up to do because I had to get scores to fill in the gaps. And so also the Internet allowed anybody to open up a scoreboard and allowed the uh, industry to have their own scoreboard for their own games. So even though Twin Galaxy became very active, there were hundreds and hundreds of scoreboards online at any time. But as the years went on, Guinness was most interested in the activities of Twin Galaxies and recognized Twin Galaxies as being the bona fide scoreboard that would actually do the highest level of adjudication to prove whether or not a score was indeed a world record. So, of course, we had the, the strong relationship that became revived again with Guinness as the years went on. I mean, talking about that kind of era, like the mid-90s, I mean, you know, I was someone who loved the arcades, and I remember around that time, as kind of home consoles became more powerful, um, arcades around the world, you know, many places saw quite a demise around the mid-90s. How did you feel about that, and how did you deal with it? Well, it's true. Uh, Less and less and less arcades were in existence, so therefore we had less and less uh, uh, support from arcades because they didn't exist. So a lot of the work had to be focused on... Uh, scores coming from a growing ba- a, gr- a, a growing interest in PC-based games, and also uh, a plethora of uh, of console games. And a couple interesting dynamics came into play that affected a lot of games, and actually made the games not that easy to score or to adjudicate. One of them is, for instance, Nintendo. I don't know if Nintendo literally pioneered it but they certainly turned it into a big stroke of fanfare in that tons and tons and tons of the games, they would all max out at 99990 or something like that. Or they would have an ending to it. They'd either, they'd either have an ending to it or they'd, have a, uh, or they'd have a high score end to it. And so we would find 150 people with the same maxed score. So it's hard to decide who was going to be declared the world champion. I mean, theoretically, it could be the first person to reach the max out. He could be honored. But what began to develop is that people began to do the fastest time, the speed running. See who could get to the end of the game while still getting the max score in the fastest time possible. And one of the biggest stories we had was about back around the year 2000, when someone got all the way to the end of Pitfall getting all the maximum score while getting the lowest possible time, the fastest time possible. And that really, uh, it was remarkable to us how much media attention that got all over the internet. You're totally right about them kind of adding limitations in the scores and then new methods of uh, completing games or, or competitive gaming coming through. I really liked the stuff in the 90s where people would like have to try and complete games with no weapons or they would limit themselves uh, to a certain kind of uh, thing. Have you seen many examples of these? Oh, yeah. Well, there have been, there've been tons of those carried and promoted by Twin Galaxies. Uh, speed running so big that not only Twin Galaxies monitored, but there's lots and lots of uh, websites exclusively set up to monitor speed runs. Uh, and, and special, special, like in the classic Donkey Kong, there's one variation high score, uh, to see what the highest score you can get without using the hammer. The no hammer high score, I think it's called, for Donkey Kong. 
And of course, it's much lower than the normal play because you don't get the points that would be uh, you'd harvest through using the hammer. But uh, and also, it makes it more of a challenge because you can't go that far in the game. I don't think I have. I'd have to double check on where the scores are at. But uh, yeah, that's a good example how the no hammer score is very popular, just like the uh, normal playing of Donkey Kong. Well, a whole new audience learned about you and Twin Galaxies with the King of Kong movie. What did you think of that film, and did it portray everything correctly and accurately? Well, no, no, it didn't. Uh, in fact, it actually kind of it actually hurt very much when it came out. Uh, it was a very, very upsetting experience. Uh, when they were filming the movie, it was happening at a time that there were like three or four different film crews around us, all trying to film their own documentaries. And the, and the film crew did not like each other, and there were rivalries between them. Did you ever see the movie Chasing Ghosts? Yeah, yeah, that was around the same time, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, they were being filmed literally at the same time, and the film crews were in the room filming us at the same... They were in the room together filming us at the same time, and they did not like each other. So it was a lot of intensity going on and uh, a lot of stress, and, uh, and allegedly the film crews supposedly were, 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 were doing... They were, they were behind the scenes. They were, I guess, doing things to each other that, 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 were, that, that was causing uh, the rivalry to become more intense. But eventually, it all shook out into just two movies actually making it uh, to, to, to print, and they actually premiered on the same day within an hour of each other at Sundance Film Festival and Slam Dance Film Festival, which were both conducted in Park City, Utah. And I think Chasing Ghosts opened up by one hour before, uh, before King of Kong opened up. Chasing Ghosts was at the... Sundance Film Festival and King of Kong was at Slam Dance Film Festival. Slam uh, Sundance was created by Robert Redford to kind of like avoid big business of the film industry. Yeah. Eventually, Sundance got recognized as being big business, so someone started Slam Dance. So it's the Slam on Sundance, and they were both conducted in Sun, uh, Park City, Utah, at the same time. But both of them by then had both become prestigious, and both were big business by that time. So it's kind of an irony and a hypocrisy at the same time. Uh, so the films opened up like within an hour of each other, and the, mar- and the media marveled of it, at it because, you know, me and Billy and all these people are in both movies, whole different stories, but the same people in this Twin Galaxies story. So Twin Galaxies became immortalized for all time at that moment. <laughs> it was already probably immortalized, but it became even more immortalized because people who weren't even video game players now knew the stories of Twin Galaxies and Billy and Walter and the whole thing. But it, it was not fair because it's, it, it, it purposefully wanted to make Billy the victim, uh, the, 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 the villain and Steve Wiebe the hero. Mm. From my perspective, they're both great guys, and uh, I support them both. But, but they chose Billy, but, but they, they wanted Billy to be the, the, the villain and Steve to be hero. They actually knew Steve back from the old days personally, the film producers and directors, and they went. My understanding is, according to what they said in one of their interviews when King of Han first came out, they went drinking together one night, and the producers and Steve decided, "Yeah, we'll make a documentary on your experience with Twin Galaxies." So, they were actually pals from before the movie. When's the last time you saw the movie? Oh, probably about maybe five years ago now. Well, there's one scene at the end when Billy walks into the arcade, and Steve's there, and this is now the first moment that the people are seeing Steve and Billy together in the same place at the same time. Yeah. And Steve turns to Billy and says, hey, Billy. And Steve stands, Billy stands behind him for a moment, looks over his shoulder, then turns and walks away. 
And then he says as he walks away, there's some people, he says to his wife, there's some people that I don't want to spend too much time with. Anyway, I've been in public showings of this about a dozen times when the audience goes berserk because now they know that Billy is the ultimate heel because he wouldn't even give Steve the time of day. What actually happened is Billy stopped and Steve and Billy exchanged some warm words and Billy encouraged him and then walked away. And the reason he walked away was because he explained, because he was explaining that all these cameras are on him and people are going to say that he's trying to steal Steve's game-playing tricks or that he's trying to rattle Steve so that Steve will get nervous and lose his man. And so he feels that he can't stay there too long because it'll cause problems. So he says there's some people that I don't want to spend too much time with. But they go and cut out Billy stopping and talking to him purposefully and seam it together so that it looks like Billy snubbed them because they wanted to make Billy in the public's in the, uh, in the minds of the public to be an even bigger heel than ever. So they essentially falsify information. Yeah. So essentially that was the that was the temperature of the movie. Billy was going to be the the villain and Steve was going to be the hero. But I admit it's an absolute work of art and it's an absolutely legendary movie and I put game playing for competitive gaming on the map and I put Twin Galaxies on the historical map and in everybody's radar for all times to come. There were some movie producers, uh, uh, film critics rather, who recently did a study of the 3,000 films of the last 10 years, and they watched them all and, 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 and kind of like critiqued them all so that they could whittle it down and find their list of what they thought were the 30 greatest films of the last 10 years. And when they whittled to the 3,000, the King of Kong came up number 29. So the King of Kong movie is a legend and a work of art for all time. And uh, and I, I appreciate it as, as such. And uh, it personally hurt because it just wasn't fair, that's all. It just wasn't fair, but it's a work of art, and it's a lot of fun for everybody to watch, and it's very, very engrossing. So that's my, so that's my story on the King of Kong. It wasn't fair to Billy Mitchell. That's my statement. Well, how do you feel today when you kind of go online and you can see Twitch, which is essentially people watching other people play games? You see these giant esports events with, um, you know, competitive League of Legends teams playing for thousands of pounds cash prizes. Do you kind of feel I helped start that and get it out there? There are a lot of people out there who think I helped start that. There are a lot of people out there who actually declare me the father of esports. Only in that I, I created the model, and I really went for it and made it happen back before anybody did. Now, there are people out here who say, no, no, you couldn't be the father of esports. Someone invented a con. Someone did contests before you. Someone did, you know, someone did had competitions before you. Well, I don't, I, I don't think anybody says Walter invented video games. They didn't, I didn't invent competitive gaming because people were having contests in every arcade in America. Well, what, what Twin Galaxies did, it was an organized. So Twin Galaxies is really the birthplace of organized competitors playing because by creating the scoreboard with its rules and its tradition of champions and its tradition of uh, world score belts, uh, essentially it created an organization that was able to unite all the arcades in the world into a, into, into a global esports arena so that you could play against anybody else despite the lack of the Internet by having your score be verified and then be compared to everybody else's score in an actual standings. Many people consider Twin Galaxies and Atumwa the birthplace of organized competitive esports. 
Well, one testament to, you know, the resurgence of the interest in classic gaming would be the Wreck-It Ralph movie that came out in, you know, the last few years. And obviously, you know, Mr. Litwack in that film was kind of a nod to you, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. I'm supposed to be Mr. Litwack. <laughs> I've, been told that, I've been told that, well, it's all over all those different kind of Disney wiki sites that Walter Day is Mr. Litwack, and Mr. Litwack is Walter Day, and oh, the dude all day, or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and three times now, insiders with Disney have told me directly that, oh, yeah, that was supposed to be you. It's just that on uh, in the business plan part of the company, though, like the people wear the suits and the lawyers and stuff like that, my understanding is is that they have it set up so that any time they needed to, they could say, oh, no, this was based on Mr. George What's-His-Name over in the art department. But the artist had confided to me that, no, it was intended to be Walter Day. Well, obviously, you know, you retired from Twin Galaxies in 2010. Um, are you still involved in video games much today? Well, I still make appearances. I have the, uh, I have the intention of coming to England sometime soon to do an awards ceremony that features the trading cards, the trading cards that I publish, because there's a whole bunch of Brits and Europeans that we want to give them awards and want to give them trading cards. But it's such an expensive trip that it hasn't been figured out yet because we would have to have sponsors who would bring us there and pay for airfare and stuff like that. Um, so I don't, know, I don't know if you know anybody who would want to sponsor me and Billy Mitchell and Joel West, and maybe some other people come over there and do a big, uh, big event with uh, 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 ceremonies and hand out the awards and frames and uh, the trading cards. Uh, we will be honoring the historic Brits who have contributed to, to, the, to the video game and esports culture in Great Britain. Your trading cards cover like, you've got uh, thousands of them now, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Well, there's actually 1,700 that, uh, that have been printed and actually are to, that are actually distributed. Uh, uh, around the world. And there's about another four or 500 that have been designed that aren't printed yet simply because it's so expensive to print the cards. And, uh, and uh, it seems that I don't have much of a business plan going because I seem to be giving the cards away more than I sell them. Because <laughs> I've given away what they estimate to be around 250,000 cards as gifts so far. Wow. We just want to say thank you for joining us this week, Walter. It's been uh, you know, fascinating getting your stories from the Twin Galaxy era, and it's amazing that you've still got this passion for video games as well all, all these years later. Well, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of friends, a lot of amazing things, and also, as I said, it's a huge, huge... It's, it's, a, it's a cultural phenomenon, the whole thing that's happened. It's an amazing experience to go through the whole thing. And I've met lots and lots of people who are just amazing and who are going to carry on this culture long after I'm gone. And you guys are probably part of that. In fact, your show. And uh, in fact, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I regularly, regularly create trading cards that honor people who are video game journalists because what you do is very significant. And I hope I hope you're going to include this in the in the, in the when you publish this all in because the people who listen to this better be very appreciative of what you do because without your efforts a lot of history will be lost because there's so many so many stories that otherwise would not come out if you didn't actually put your effort your time your money and your devotion and uh, everything to uh, to capturing the stories and uh, you know commemorating them so. Let's do trading cards oh, for Dan and, and then Ravi. So let's stay in touch on this. But other than that, other than that, I don't know what further I can say. Oh, well, Walter, you know, our chat for an hour there, we got, you know, some incredible tales. And, it's, you know, we appreciate you sharing those with us. And let's absolutely stay in touch. And if you do get that trip over here in the UK, you know, we'll, we'll 100% come out and uh, cover that and say hi. Okay, thank you very much. You guys are great.